Hello and welcome to the Game Dev London podcast. Uh, my name is Anna and on today's episode I wanted to do a deep dive into game design pillars, what they are, how we use it, why do we need them and today I'm joined by my co-host Adam. Hello Adam, how are you doing? I'm not doing too bad, I'm not doing too bad. Uh, it started off raining this morning after such a lovely weekend, um, but it's now sun's out, um, you know, excited to record a podcast, excited to chat to you as well and yeah, ready to rock and roll. Nice. Here it's kind of raining. The weekend was very nice. So. Uh, but let's dive in. So what I design pillars, um, in my experience, is kind of like guidelines for the designers and the entire team to kind of filter uh, what the game is or a feature uh, and dis- make decisions based on it. Uh, do you even use them in your process? I mean, it's interesting. So often not. Um, and the reason is not because I don't, I, I, it's not at all because I don't like them. It's just normally a lot of my development is very kind of uh, quick. We just sort of, you know, it's, get, it's sort of game jammed, a lot of pulling stuff together and just running with it. When actually, um, I think that they are more important than I give them credit for in terms of, you know, having that thing to kind of to go back to. So the games are working on at the minute, I think, Often we kind of we're building up to a kind of prototype stage, and I think at that point, fluidity uh, being dynamic and just kind of changing between different areas is crucial, uh, where the pillars kind of need to come into place later. But more things that I'm hearing recently, it's maybe that it's actually worth having them in from the start. Um, so yeah, so so a lot of the times probably not, but probably should be using them more. Uh, I'm, my experience is mostly like in uh, big studios with like large teams, so we usually like start with them. Uh, um, I guess uh, if it's just game jam, you don't really have time to like sit down and define it. Whereas uh, when you're working with like a huge team, it's I find it very important to actually sit down and define like what are you gonna like, what is the player gonna do, what are they gonna feel uh, to keep the experience kind of coherent. Um, yeah, I think there's a huge, there's a thing about that, exactly that, which is the fact that um, it, it, it feels like there's no time in a game jam. And I think that that's a big problem, especially in prototyping and early development. But exactly said, this is what the, the big studios know. If you don't have these kind of, you know, these lines in the sand, these pillars, these points of reference, um, these um, monoliths, if you will, but that, that it's very easy to lose track of what's important to the game that you're making or to start making decisions that, while they seem you know, well-intentioned or useful or, or purposeful at the time, that actually don't work in terms of the kind of the remit or the limits of development that you've set out. And that can cause the problems very soon or later down the line. Um, and that's why even in a game jam, actually, you can start by going, what are the things that we need to stick to? So I think it's, you know, this is where sometimes indies can take lessons from, you know, often indies can take lessons from from big AAAs and that kind of thing. But starting by going, actually, what are the key areas of our, of our game is an important thing to define in the first instance. Yeah, I find it keeps uh, the project coherent, like, you can add so many things to your game uh, and all of them are going to sound great, but the pillars help you understand if they're going to work together so that you don't invest a lot of time into something that actually like 
doesn't work for your specific game, like adding farming to a horror game or something like that, that kind of like doesn't go together unless um, there is a specific purpose for it. Mm-hmm. And also another thing uh, which we find is useful, like if you're, wor- I assume you like work a lot in smaller teams, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like wh- when we're working in a big team, uh, um, as a designer, you kind of have your own role and we have engineers and artists, but then like everyone, when uh, everyone on the team knows what the design pillars are, they can come to you, to the designer with like their ideas or feedback and they're way more relevant if they know what the goal is and people feel way more involved in the process as well uh, so they can be heard and give input into the kind of like the design of the game as well yeah i think that's a, that's a, definitely a very good point that pillars are they're the not only are they the starting point of the game but they are the starting point of the team you know you're defining what is and isn't important and then by extension who is and isn't in charge of that and who makes decisions based on that and how teams are structured around that and when you have such a small team you can't define those roles quite as cleanly you know there is in a three or four person team there is no art department there is no programming department it's just that you know that that person's the one doing it or that person's the one searching for it online or whatever it may be um but it's exactly it's that accountability that you were sort of referring to there is still super important because when nobody is in charge of a certain area it's very easy either for that area to be forgotten about and sort of left to languish and then sort of last minute go oh we really need to have that uh as often in game jam in particular happens a lot with sound for example you know you get often you get a lot of programmers and artists and they just they don't really focus on sound and then last minute they throw something in and it you know damages the overall experience of the game or um if it can't it gets dragged into kind of decision hell where everybody feels that they have to play a part and everybody's like oh well this is my opinion and this is my opinion and nobody stands and goes you know what i'm in charge of this and therefore i say this and it's not i'm not saying you know that we want that kind of uh somebody to say i'm in charge that's it you know what i say goes but there does need to sometimes be somebody who says I have the final I have the final say on this and I'm saying we're going with that just to keep things rolling forwards. And so while there's not there's not predefined that kind of person, that department, that role, that hierarchy, it's useful to be able to even in a small team go, okay, I'm going to be in charge of this, you're going to be in charge of that, I'm going to be in charge of this, and I trust you to make those decisions. Where even if you do make things for the group, you're able to go, this is what we're doing. I've said it and I'm the one in charge of this kind of specific uh, specific area. Yeah, absolutely. And um, um, so, like, in a, uh, excuse me, uh, and it's very important to have the pillars as well. Uh, like, when you're making that decision uh, and you're telling the person, like, oh, I'm going to be in charge in that area. Um, you can like refer back to the objectives and be like, oh, we're not taking this part, it's cool, but there is this exact like rule or guidelines that is gonna tell us uh, what we're taking into the game and what we're not. Uh, so like in your smaller projects, how do you define uh, without using the pillars then um, what kind of things go into the game? What kind like, how do you manage the scope um, of your projects? uh poorly probably the answer um but uh i think exactly kind of what we're referring to there is the fact that um when it's a small team 
you can and depending on how well that small team know each other you can get away either with um that one person who's kind of the the project leader if you will the project manager the person who kind of what they say goes and therefore other people can kind of contribute and come up with ideas but ultimately that person takes shoulder of the responsibility of saying yes and no to things and then you are reliant on that person having a good sense of, of scope and scope creep and preventing things getting uh, sort of out of hand um and that can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on the person you know if that what that person is uh, a producer or has a mind for like long-form game development then you're probably in good hands if that person has not really made a lot of games before or has their specific area but gets easily easily distracted then it's very very quickly that game can lose you know all sense of scope and and slickness because they just want to add features and they just want to add stuff um the other way of doing it is that in, so uh, in my company where we there's any there's um three of us are the kind of the co-founders and we have a slightly large team in that now but the three of us kind of make decisions as a group and we are very lucky for two reasons one we've been working with each other for such a long time we're generally aligned on things um whilst also having a lot of experience in game development but because there are three of us there can there can only ever be a majority um you know unless we're in a weird situation where we've got three decisions generally speaking it's two versus one um and in that situation you just have to trust the people that you're with that they have the best intentions in mind and also that at some point you will also be on the benefit the, the the winning side of that two versus one majority and that ultimately you know unless there's some kind of fundamental reason why you think something won't work and you you know you have to stand your ground um that even in those circumstances that you trust if you do have to do that that the other people will believe in you and trust you and, and work with you and ultimately it comes down to that kind of trust thing which is trust is great for small teams agile teams people who know each other not great for big teams or teams that don't know each other because you can't it's difficult to have that let that intrinsic level of trust between each other to know that decisions are being made in the best interest not only of the game but also bearing in mind your personal opinion as well and so for us we get away with the fact that we have trust but certainly in game jams for example when i work with people that i don't know i often take on the role of that kind of project manager um creative director if you will kind of position trying to bring in the opinions of everyone in my team because people can bring diverse and interesting opinions but with a mindful of the fact that sometimes decisions just have to be made and something people people can get really excited about things that just aren't either aren't going to work or go out of scope exactly like exactly like your example you know if you're making a horror game and the artist or another programmer comes in and says oh but you know in this bit we should have a farming mini game you do have to have somebody who can say no we're not going to do that because if everybody just goes oh yeah let's do it your game goes completely wild and out of focus for and and i've been there you know we did a we did a game once uh it came off the back of game jam we carried on developing it we took it to an uh to um egx to showcase it and we wrote down every piece of feedback that we got every single piece we wrote it down um because we thought that people playing it would know what you know what needs to change what needs to adapt and without really doing a lot of analysis of the feedback we've given we tried to just kind of implement all of it we kind of just go yeah we'll do that we'll do that and what we ended up with was a hot mess a hot mess of a game with like waves and king of the hill and top down and but also with an angle and uh, it was just a mess absolute mess um because 
people often have can get really excited about their own personal ideas and not necessarily have in mind the scope of what they're working on the limitations of cost or time or budget or ability or capability or, or anything and you need that kind of uh, either collective spirit or individual spirit who can say this isn't going to work um so yeah so to answer your question we get away with that on trust and the ability that, and the fact that we, we know each other very well that we can kind of be that kind of scoping uh, or limiting scoping person for each other um but i think it, it can be very difficult especially for new teams yeah um but like even though you're saying you don't have any pillars like you like you trust each other but each one of you have has like a vision right um so like you do inform your decision somehow and that's essentially what the pillars are uh but just like not written down so like how uh do you personally uh, decide which decision is the correct one and which one isn't yeah and you're right we, we and this is where one of the one of the bigger problems comes in with, with uh not having defined pillars is that you as an individual or me in this case me as an individual certainly have kind of a mindset of what the kind of game i'm trying to build um and you don't even if you don't re consciously realize it you're kind of hoping or expecting or assuming that everybody else has the exact same vision as you um which and it's just not you know often it's not the case uh and so for me and normally it comes from early in the stage of development i'll have a think about what i believe this game to be what is it what is it what is the game trying to do what is it trying to say how do i want players to play it what do i want them to take away from the experience you know um what is important to this game and defining those kind of key areas kind of form my kind of internal pillars as it were um and i try to answer all questions that come up in development in relation to those kind of pillars so to take uh global game the, the game we made for global game jam as an example um the key pillars for me were kind of uh the visual aesthetic of the game making it look great um this kind of sense of a of a duality because that was the theme uh between the two sides of, of my game sort of the, my game was based on a, on a cube so there's two sides kind of in competition with each other um and having that duality run throughout the game and uh, leading into it being a worthwhile experience for the player. Now, those seem like really good pillars. You know, I mean, it sounds like you've got a core, you've got this idea, you know what you're doing. Notice that none of those pillars were gameplay. And it showed the game was okay to play. It was not as fun as my, I was just like, ah, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be all right. Whereas if I'd gone back to start and really stood there and gone, what are the pillars of our game? One of them should have been gameplay, 100%. And then decisions should have been made throughout development around making the gameplay whatever it was that we wanted. It could have been fun. It could have been interesting. It could have been creative. It could have been, it could have been anything. But because there was nothing, it got left behind. And so the feedback that I got from people playing the game afterwards were, looks great, one of the pillars. Uh, really interesting use of the theme one of the ideas not that fun because i missed it and that's a really important part a really a big problem with in, internalized pillars is that if you don't vocalize it and talk to people and get opinions you can miss really big obvious things 
Yeah, so basically you didn't have pillars, but just in your head. Uh, you did meet them though, so that's uh, a good sign. Uh, but yeah, I do feel also it's important to write them down. Um, when I'm making my own projects, like I usually create like a pillar for each category, like how does it look, how does it feel? Um, I think like one of the processes that we learned um, when I just joined the industry, which I thought was brilliant, we got like an entire team to just write down the actions and then write down the feelings. So yeah. like, what does a player do? How do they feel? And what is, and the third one was like the overall experience. And then you as a team match them up. So you have like all of the areas covered. You have the actions, you have what the player does, you have the feelings, you have like the overall atmosphere, the scene, all of it. Um, and it's kind of like within each pillar, you would have all of the components of the game and you would be trying to kind of like create the experience that matches that pillar at all times. Absolutely. And not getting yeah, no, I, I think emo emotion is a really good way of starting, especially if you're first starting your game and you're trying to think of how, you know, how do we define a pillar for this? You know, what, what's it going to be? How would we even start that? Emotion is a fantastic starting point because ultimately that is one of the things you're trying to get the person at the other end of the, the end to do is to feel something anything right because if they if they play your game and they feel nothing then it's not a great experience it's like okay great you know you think about your you know your favorite tv shows right if you put on a tv show and felt nothing no emotional reaction you turn it off because what, what it's a waste of your time um so starting with okay with the exactly like you said start with each area with the gameplay how do we want the player to feel do we want them to be delighted do we want them to be surprised do we want them to be scared do we want them to be uh to joyful what what is it that we want people to to feel in that moment it's a great way of kind of setting up your your initial kind of pillars and then being able to bounce off them and go you know if your goal is to make the player feel scared and someone comes along and says oh i want this bounce to feel really juicy you're like is that gonna terrify anyone is anyone gonna go you know if if our scary game has got this great bounce you know bouncing that feels so light and happy does that completely undermine what we're trying to do here um yeah really it's a really good starting point yeah and like the bouncing might be amazing but then you have like this specific rule of like this just does not fit the theme and then no one feels offended or anything like that mm -hmm. um so uh, how, like you were talking about defined vision, which for me, even though you don't call it pillars, uh, it's still a pillar. It's just mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the case of like writing them down and not writing them down. So what's your process of defining what the vision is? Like, where do you get inspiration uh, for like all those like feely, touchy things in the game? So it's interesting is that for me, I'm kind of, I try to kind of stay aware of things that interest me at all times. And so I, you know, I, I, I go on sort of open places, like obviously the Twitter, um, Reddit and uh, Instagram and all these, you know, go out into the world. I read and watch films and TV, all this kind of stuff and keep an eye out for things that I think are particularly interesting because you don't know, you don't know what your next game is going to be. And you don't know when you make it, what, aesthetic or aspect or thing you're going to care about um so for example going into global game jam uh i knew that i wanted to make a game that had kind of an emotional driver at the core of it that that made the player feel something 
And that drove a lot of my decision-making and it drove it away from gameplay, but it did drive it to this interesting place where we made this game about um, the kind of the, the, the issues of trade between two different sides of, the, of these groups and how they work together. Um, and the goal was to kind of make the player feel for this character who was kind of caught between two sides of um, this kind of uh, trade war, essentially. Um, and it came where it came from. I think it came from the real world. You know, there's a lot of issues around trade at the minute and uh, people discussing the implications of trade. I think that definitely sort of drove the decision making. I thought it was a great narrative point of view that it's somewhere to connect with the player and make them feel something outside of you know a lot of games go just joyful or happy and that's it that, that, that's the dragon which is fine it's absolutely not a problem but i think games have the power to do some really interesting things in that space and certainly my favorite games don't just go for joyful and that's it they go for other emotions as well and so i was trying to build something with that in mind um and in terms of the game in terms of the narrative i think we did that but obviously i, I my, my mistake was sacrificing gameplay for that um but yeah i think it's easy i think it's easy for people to just draw emotion to draw inspiration just from games um but the problem with that is that you are only drawing if you only draw from places that you've been before then you the things you're going to make are going to be very similar um that's not to say you can't take stuff from other games absolutely you do you know the deck think about the games that give you the kind of sense of uh like you said the little bits of what you want to do like uh, if you want to do a really interesting world, is it going to be more Breath of the Wild? Is it going to be more Odyssey? Is it going to be more uh, Elden Ring? What kind of world do you want to build? You can draw from those experiences and learn about it. But also, there's a if, if you were doing an open world game, there's a lot of open worlds out there written in books, in films. Go out into the local park and see how they've decorated it. You know, there's there's lots of ways of of creating the same thing, and find the ones that are closest to what you want what you want to do but also allow you to kind of draw from other places to do something new and interesting yeah absolutely like for me as well uh drawing from different media and just from outside world like i wanted to create like a hiking game and mm. uh, to draw inspiration and create like my objectives and stuff i just went on a hike and it was kind of recording everything that i was feeling um Think like it's an interesting idea to try to recreate a real world feelings into a game. Oh and, yeah, massively. Uh, uh, if you set it as an objective, you can then like tailor your mechanics, your aesthetics, your story to do that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we've been talking about the like vision and philosophy the entire game, but. Uh, in my opinion, we also set the objectives like per feature uh, mm. to make sure that it's like it does something, you know. Uh, do you ever do that? Like, how do you start a feature? Do you have like a specific objectives uh, to implement, like, so it fits with the system or do you, do you just roll with it? It, it kind of depends on the game. Um, so to go, so to take a game, um, like uh, well to take to go back to that example that i made before about the game that uh, uh the game that failed the one where we, we added too many things and it just became a mess when that happened i kind of wanted to go okay we've done all, this this game was was good at some point you know we took it to egx people enjoyed it what was it about the game that people enjoyed and we drilled down into it and for, for us in the game it was this kind of uh slightly rhythm based wave shooter where you would use you had kind of like a physics based weapon that kind of pushed enemies back and the way it worked was that if you push them back with enough force they would kind of fling off you and smash 
into a wall and be destroyed. And uh, we had a two-player mode that allowed you to compete against each other, but also to smash your your opponent into the wall as well. And people love that. People love going to friend and kind of using physics to kind of smash them into a wall. And these are just sort of top-down 2D characters. But we took that feeling that so in this case, the feeling was it was it was playful, it was joyful, it was free. Um, you know, you there was no limits on when you did it, you just kind of had this this freedom mechanic, and um it was competitive, it was competitive, you were doing it against somebody else. And we took that out and said, People love this. How do we make that as a game and nothing else? Uh, and that led to the development of our, our next game, which we, we, we're still working on, which is uh, called Robo Basho, which is like a robot sumo fighting game. And we started, our first prototype was a top-down 2D game where you had a, a physics-based character who sort of moved around a ring and a dash. And that's all it was. So you could dash and knock into somebody and try and knock them off the arena. And we took that to an event and people really enjoyed it. People really liked that game. And even though it was really just these two mechanics, you move and you dash and that's it, people still enjoyed it because we'd found, like you said, for this mechanic, we'd found the pillars that worked for people, which was to make it uh, fun, make it uh, free in terms of physics and make it competitive. And by just sticking to that and having something, the absolutely simplest form of that, we still had something fun. And actually, we didn't need all this extra stuff, these, you know, the wave shoot. In this case, we didn't need the wave shoot or the rhythm based or the king of the hill, the map or anything. We just, if we just had that, it was still a fun game. And so we then built an even better game off the back of that, which we're still working on to this day. Yeah, so it sounds like a little bit of a backwards process. You made a game and then you like, <laughs> Yeah, like, I don't recommend part that part for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I do that as well all the time. Uh, but no, this is um, this is interesting because like if you did define the pillars at the very start, you wouldn't have even invested all the time uh, because every time you start making something, you would ask a question like, is it, um, does it have that core that we want to create kind of thing? Um, so how do you, like, we use pillars to also uh, define if a feature of a game is successful, like, they don't have to be emotional, they could be like, or oh, it's drivers engagement or players interact with that feature more kind of thing. So how, and we used it to define like, if we made something successful, how do you define what the successful feature is in your games? Yeah, so success is an interesting one because uh, very often people just default to monetary and go, you know, if, if we make X amount or Y amount or, or this many people play it, then that, you know, that's success. And that, that's fine. That's absolutely fine as a goal. But it's restrictive in terms of there are very, to do that, there are very key things that you have to do. And I think a lot of people, they just, they slap that on as a goal and then don't think about it. When actually the whole point of all of your goals and targets are to drive your decision-making. So if your goal is to have, you know, a million players or, or a million owners, then you have to make a game that a million people would buy. You can't make something super niche and interesting that's like for a specific group of people if your goal is to have a million players. Those two goals, that, that, that pillar and that uh, strategy are not aligned. Um, so you have to think about what does success look like for you in that instance. Uh, often for us, it's just about making, you know, for us, it's, it's never normally um, particularly big, uh, particularly big goals. It's more about um, trying to just define um, 
a small area in which we want to be successful. So for us, that could be, uh, you know, we made someone happy or we made a lot of people happy or we made 10 people happy. It doesn't really matter that much. Um, for RoboBash, so for, for Antiphase, um, which was the one we took to EGX, we didn't really define what that was. We just kind of did it and was just like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I think for the, for RoboBash, it's gonna, we're going to have to find goals like um, we want i think what's a good one for example probably be for us it'll be something like a review score uh and the reason for that is because that doesn't limit the number of players that we have to have we're not going to say you know oh we've got to have a million players because that changes how we're building the game now it's got to be a game that a million people would want to own and if it's not then we're going to hit a problem um so it would be probably something like have a 85 percent score on metacritic for example, because that way that aligns with our goals of being a good game that people like and is enjoyable and is well reviewed, which is a totally different set of goals, but does mean that we're then focused in what we're doing and making sure we're like, is this something that, you know, it's, it's a bit vague because it's like, well, you know, well, <laughs> is this an 85% rated feature? Who knows? But it does mean that there's a, it gives us a quality bar that we have to adapt to. And if we're, if we're, coming in under that quality bar if we're going this thing this gameplay this feature how this feels is not you know that level of quality the kind of quality that someone playing go yeah this is really good then we know we've got a problem yeah and like uh things like metacritic i think are very useful like because that kind of speaks to the quality of the feature rather than uh mm -hmm number of players because if your goal is to get a specific number of players then you're going to make a game that sounds very interesting but not not fun to play because yep. you don't care if they stay you just care who you acquire kind of thing absolutely mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um which kind of brings me like what would you say is a good goal because like you know with any kind of goals, like even personal job goals, same as game and feature goals, uh, what for you is a good one? What is a well-defined and what is a bad one? As with a lot of things that are like defined points, for me, the key here is, uh, I, I generally tend to use smart targets, um, which basically align to, is it, uh, is it sensible? Does it, you know, does it, is it i think it's sensible sensible yeah sensible measurable achievable um oh i always remember the r and the tr um i'm, gonna, I'm definitely not looking them up in the background uh is it uh reachable i'm gonna say relevant that's the one uh is it specific measurable attainable relevant time-based i definitely didn't google that um where basically what we're talking about here is the fact that you if you're Goals are not just statements that exist. Um, you know, if you just say, uh, I want to do this, I want to do that, great. Um, the problem is, is that they hold no accountability. They hold no intention. They hold no direction. They hold no way for you to actually know that you've done it. And that's a problem. You know, the difference between I want to be rich and I want to have a million pounds in my bank account by the end of this year is there are so being rich is such a vague statement saying I want to have a million pounds by the end of this year gives you a point in time at which you're measuring against it gives you an amount of which you're doing 
Um, it's still not a perfect goal, but it's a much easier goal to imagine to work backwards from and figure out how you'd get there than uh, anything else. So for me, smart doing creating goals for using smart targets, being specific about what you're trying to achieve, how you're going to measure it. Uh, is it something that's actually even feasible? You know, there's no point saying uh, I want to make a game, an MMO, you know, an MMORPG with six people because you could sit there going, can you actually do that? Is that going to be possible in any kind of reasonable time? Uh, is it important, relevant to what you're doing? You know, don't start setting goals that don't really help you um, or help your game. And time-based because a goal with no end is not a goal. It just sounds, it sounds like a goal, but I want to be rich doesn't, you know, with no time frame doesn't mean anything. What does that mean? Does that mean by the end of your life, you've made X amount? Great, good for you. Having it say time-based within six months, a year, two years, whatever, just gives it that scope that means it actually might happen as opposed to, uh, we'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah, that's uh, how a lot of projects that you never finish are created. When <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I have a lot of those. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah, um, I'm kind of like the relevance, I think, is the most important, especially like if you're combining a lot of them uh, for specifically for a game or like a feature. Like if you have a lot of goals that don't align between each other, that also doesn't kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is this, this goes back to our point before about if you're not uh, stating your goals, if you're not stating your pillars, if you're not talking to a team about it, the problem is, is that you can get really quickly get un misaligned goals. And misaligned goals can lead people off in very different directions and in ways that you don't expect. And it'll only be when you come back together and do talk about it in the form of this feature that someone's been developing for six months. And then they go, right, I'm going to integrate it into the game. And you go, this has got nothing to do with the game that I'm making and you're like, but this is the game that I'm making that you can hit these huge problems and really big, you know, like discussions about what the purpose of it is. Whereas if right at the beginning, you have community, you know, open communication, talk about the plan, what you're doing, et cetera. You can avoid those problems by just being open and communicative about what your goals and what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And the takeaway, like we all actually do use objectives and game pillars, uh, but just don't write them down, which is very important, especially yeah. if you're working in a team. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think for a first um, part of this episode, uh, that's I, I, th I think like we defined pretty well um, what the game pillars are, why we use them. Uh, why they're important. I do recommend you use them in your project. They're very, very good. Thanks everyone for joining us on the Game Dev London podcast. To find out more, uh, please go to gamedevlondon.co.uk uh, or otherwise, see you next week. Bye. Bye bye.